Thanks very much for that introduction. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Um, it's clear I'm, I'm an economist by training, and uh, this is really my first foray, and I, probably that of my co-authors as well, into the um, national security arena. And let me just get the slide set up here. This, um, this project actually grew up um, out of our own thinking and conversations about what was then a looming uh, invasion of Iraq uh, in 2002, and um, very much a sense of dissatisfaction uh, with the, the kinds of conversations we had with uh, faculty colleagues around the lunch table, but also the dissatisfaction with the nature of the public discussion um, on, in the newspapers, on TV, among our political leaders, and so on, about the choice uh, then as to what to do with respect to Iraq. Um, and one, one fundamental element that we thought was missing from much of that discussion, most of that discussion, is, is, in, is, is a an attempt to systematically compare um, what was then this idea that there was going to be a, a war and a forcible regime change to the alternative um, the alternatives in the t on the table, but in the United States at the time, the main alternative on the table uh, was a continuation of the uh, pre-war containment policy. So what we set out to do was to evaluate um, these two policies systematically, these two policy options systematically, and to take to it a quantitative analytical approach insofar as we could, uh, draw drawing on uh, basic tools of economic analysis, um, and flesh out something of a f both a framework for thinking about this choice, but actually try to do some do some of it seriously. Try to put some serious numbers um, on these choice on these these two different options in terms of economic costs and also in terms of um, costs in terms of lives for for Iraqis and uh, for Americans. Um, so so a lot of that's hard to do, but um, we gave it. Uh, a good shot. Um, we revisited this paper, this this issue in, a, in kind of a much more well, a more in-depth matter uh, manner in 2005, and then and then produced this paper, which I'll which I'm going to draw on today. This is this is this is the basis for my remarks, which is a paper that we circulated in February 2006. Just so you have some idea of when we wrote things, because as as you're no doubt aware, um, the the course of events in Iraq has, um, I think, deteriorated uh, markedly in 2006. So, so we're thinking about this as a decision problem, um, confronting either policymakers or confronting a, a democratic society. Um, we might want to come back at the end or in the course of the discussion as to uh, why I think, and, and, and whether this is a useful type of exercise to undergo. For now, let me just tell you how we tackled this problem um, as an intellectual uh, exercise, and then we can, come, we can come back and talk about um, the usefulness uh, of this approach. So, as I mentioned before, we thought about there's, there's two main policy options that were on the table, and I'm thinking now uh, late 2002 or 2002, early 2003. Um, and I want to evaluate them systematically. There's war, war enforceable regime change, 
And then there's a continuation of the pre-war containment policy. And I've, I've listed the, uh, the main elements of the containment policy uh, as I understand them. So there were uh, economic sanctions, uh, fairly draconian sanctions, that were imposed on Iraq uh, after 1991 and that continued all the way up till uh, 2003. There was a vigorous weapons inspections and disarmament program um, authorized by the United Nations, mostly well, more or less enforced and often less enforced um, by the United States and some of its allies. There was, um, as many of you I'm sure understand better than I, there was um, intermittent periods of activity and inactivity for the disarmaments program, uh, the weapons inspection program, because sometimes the UN advisors were not allowed in the country, sometimes they were. Um, there was a there were northern and southern no-fly zones that were uh, initially operated by the French, British, and American forces, but the French dropped out fairly uh, early on in the process, and uh, this was largely carried out, almost entirely carried out by uh, American and British forces. There was um, there were two fly zones, um, two no-fly zones, one in the north, one in the south. These were rather expensive to operate, and many of the naval and air uh, forces that were in the region, either at ground bases or on, uh, uh, on carrier task forces, uh, were devoted to enforcing these no-fly zones. Uh, there was also a maritime interdiction force, which, which, as I understand it, had participation by a much larger number of countries. Uh, maybe somewhere between 10 and 20. And this maritime interdiction force was part of the, uh, uh, part of the regime for, um, uh, part of the enforcement mechanism for the sanctions regime. Um, <clears throat> and then there were U.S. forces in the Persian Gulf area and, and outside the uh, Gulf area, outside the uh, southern Turkey that, were all, that could be called upon for purposes of deterrent. So one thing we want to do is we want to come up with a cost, an economic cost to the United States of um, maintaining this policy, and we want to compare it then to uh, economic costs associated with the, uh, with, the war, uh, with the war. Here's the approach we're going to take. I'm, I'm going to try to approach this from an ex-ante perspective. Now, I have some knowledge. We wrote this in, you know, mostly in 2005, so we had some knowledge of what happened afterwards. Um, we try to tie our hands by relying upon data that were available uh, as of early 2003 or, or, or facts that were reasonably knowable as of 2003, you can judge for yourself how successfully uh, we, we stick to that. Um, there's a few places where we, we drew upon things that were known after 2003, and I'll try, to take, I'll try to make note of when we do that. Now, as you've already heard, there's, there's kind of three three basic issues that we try to address uh, in this paper. Um, the first, which is very much from an American perspective. So um, in terms of military resources, casualties to U.S. Uh, US personnel, and expenditures for humanitarian assistance and reconstruction aid by the United States, uh, is war more or less costly from the United States than continued containment? And we're doing this in an expected value sense as of early 2003. The second two questions are look, trying to look at things from an Iraqi perspective. So the second uh, number, question number two here is trying to evaluate in terms of a standard uh, measure of economic well-being, say real per capita GDP or per capita real income. Uh, do things look better, not just at a point in time, but kind of um, for the average Iraqi over the next over the indefinite future as a consequence of 
uh, of the how, to, how are they affected as a consequence of this policy choice between war and containment? Okay, and so um, I'll tell you about how we look at that. And then the last question, try to look. The last issue is about Iraqi lives, and um, it was well understood, I think, before the war that that war would bring uh, many Iraqi deaths um, and a lot of violence. That certainly happened. Um, what got a lot. What, what got less attention in the immediate lead-up to the war, or the, although it got a lot of attention during much of the 90s, is that the containment regime that the U.S. and its allies had been uh, imposing on Iraq since 1991, uh, coupled with the repressive policies of the uh, Saddam Hussein regime, also led to a lot of um, premature Iraqi deaths. And so we want to weigh those, those two. So those are the three questions. Now, I want to note at the outset there are lots of important issues that this analysis doesn't tackle. And um, so here's, here is a, here's a list of what I think are some of the most important questions this analysis doesn't tackle. Um, and I think most or all of these questions um, would benefit by kind of a systematical, systematic analytic treatment um, as we've tried to apply to the three questions I just outlined, some of these have been subjected to a systematic uh, analytic treatment. I don't want to suggest they haven't been. Um, the, these, quest, these other questions here, um, they, they, they differ in the degree of difficulty that it takes, that it's required to kind of approach these questions um, in an analytic way. We didn't, ta- we didn't tackle them in this, que- in this paper just because we thought the first three uh, were, were more than enough to... Uh, um, to bite off, and also they were questions, the, the, these three questions that we decided to focus on were those which we thought were somewhat amenable to standard tools of economic analysis, and uh, in, uh, theory, including just data analysis uh, tools that economists often bring to bear. So that's kind of the wind-up. How do we go about costing the containment policy? Um, Basically, we tried to, we tried to, 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 to first take a, uh, an assessment of what resources were being devoted to the containment of Iraq, what military resources were being devoted to the containment of Iraq prior to the pre-war buildup. So we found a couple of sources, um, testimony before Congress and, uh, and just um, military um, documents, um, describing the resources that were, were deployed uh, in the containment of Iraq uh, in the region, so this is only forces in the region, Persian Gulf or southern Turkey, as of 2000, 2001. And um, the, the two sources that we relied upon gave similar figures. They basically, about 28,000 troops, uh, 30 uh, major n- naval vessels, 200 military aircraft and other equipment. Um, now, one issue I want to point out at the outset is, uh, is an important one here. It may come up later on. Um, the, the sources we relied upon described these military forces as being devoted uh, to the containment of Iraq. But there's a question of whether some of these military forces uh, would have been in the region anyway, um, engaged in other things. So even though the testimony that we relied upon characterized these forces as, as required and devoted to the containment of Iraq, there's an issue there. And some of the some of the alternative scenarios or numbers I consider are are motivated by that. So so that's the military forces. Now this how to put an economic cost on those forces, and and um, that's not easy to do. Um, one thing I learned in the course of doing this is that um, 
the standard thing that economists have been doing decades with respect to capital goods, like trying to estimate the user cost of capital, seems not to be the way that people think about military equipment. Um, and so we basically constructed our own uh, user cost of capital estimates for uh, different broad types of military uh, goods, drawing on a large number of sources, many of them from the military itself, but a few from the con Congressional Budget Office and uh, other organizations. Um, I don't, unless you're going to ask me questions, I won't drill down too much to the detail, but let me just very briefly kind of give you a sense of how we did it. So you can get, you can get what, what seem to be reasonably reliable data on the lifetime of different types of military assets, okay? And that's how we generated a straight line depreciation rate um, for three categories of military equipment, ground equipment, uh, ships and aircraft. Um, so that's one component of the user cost of capital. That we're, that we're constructing. There are also components associated with maintenance, uh, repair, and so on. Um, there's the, the second line here is kind of a normal rate of operation and maintenance spending on, on these types of military as assets in peacetime use. Okay? Now, those, those rates go way up uh, in a combat situation. Uh, and I'll come back. There's also, um, well, there's, there, there's an indication there that uh, I can't remember exactly which episode this came from now, but I think this is from the other military episodes in the 1990s, line three. That's an estimate of extra depreciation and maintenance costs that are incurred uh, when, these, um, when these military assets are in theater or even, or, or even in a, a conflict zone. And you have to understand that the, um, there are a lot of military assets that when they're not in theater are idle most of the time or much of the time. And so depreciation and maintenance costs are rather low. Once you take them in, in theater, depreciation and maintenance costs go up. If they're in theater in a conflict zone, they go up even further. And so we want to uh, try to take some account of those facts. Um, <clears throat> here are the actual sum of the cost, the uh, depreciation, maintenance, and operating costs that we applied to the containment policy by broad equipment category. We add in an opportunity cost of capital figure for the government that basically reflects the real rate of interest to the government. And then this is the user cost of capital numbers we applied to those military assets, um, well, the, to the military assets uh, indicated in the capital value here. I haven't gone through the details of how we got the capital value numbers. There's a lot of detail in the paper about how we tried to estimate the, what's essentially the, cons the, the cost of, of, of uh, purchasing or constructing these, uh, these different types of military hardware. Okay? So, Estimate the asset value of the deployed military resources. Construct a user cost of capital. Put those together, and you've got a annual capital cost. This is very much parallel to what you would do um, for a corporation, for its physical assets, um, by type of equipment uh, that were devoted to containment. And that gives you, where is it, the, um, uh, the annual capital cost. I don't even it's the sum of these three numbers here, okay? On top of that, they're labor costs. Okay, that's the other main cost. There are some other minor ones, but that's the other main cost. So what we relied upon here was essentially U.S. experience during other military interventions in the 90s for um, U.S. ground troops that were stationed uh, in conflict zones, mostly in peacekeeping operations. Uh, that number is... $226,000 per person per year of troops in theater, okay? So 
gives you some sense of how expensive an operation the U.S. military is. Um, and so multiply that by the number of troops. That gives, add all that up, there's a small amount for, for expended munitions. Um, and you, we get our first estimate of the annual flow cost of containment, which is about $11 billion. Okay? Now, we took another approach to this just because there's a lot of, there, there are a lot of places where you ha where the data are less, less informative than one would like, so you have to make assumptions. Um, and we wanted to come, we wanted to have a somewhat different approach to see just what we got. Yeah, so whether, so take, let's take a different approach. This is a much cruder approach to costing out containment. Uh, but it's one that is, well, it's very transparent and it's also relies on somewhat different data inputs. So we just took, let's, let's take by service the all-in cost per, per soldier or per, uh, naval uh, uh, naval personnel, or so on. So we got the nut. We can we can get we can get the uh, well. All not all the details are shown in this slide. We know the number of we. It's it's not hard to construct an estimate for the number of active duty military personnel, say by branch of service, Army, military, Navy. We have data on what the uh, budget, what the uh, annual costs are by military uh, by by branch of the military. Let's let's take off the R&D side of things, okay? So I'm going to set off research and development. So I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to count that. And then I'm just going to do a very simple calculation of what's the annual costs per, per, um, per military personnel in each of the services. What do you get? And so this is taking in everything. This is capital, labor, materials. This is the whole shebang except for R&D. Um, and multiply, take that number multiplied by the number of troops, notice that the containment force is very heavily geared towards naval and air force personnel and not towards the ground troop. If you take that approach, you get a much larger number. It's still roughly the same ballpark. It's a much larger number. Now, it wasn't clear to us which of these numbers is better. They both, they both have problems. Both either the 11 billion number I gave you on the previous slide or the 17 billion number on this slide. So in our baseline um, analysis, we just took the average. So this, this is our average, this is our baseline estimate of how much the U.S. was spending on an annual basis to enforce the containment policy, $14.5 billion. So it's a, it's a fairly expensive policy. This one down here is motivated by the observations I made before. It might be inappropriate to attribute all of these costs to the containment of Iraq because these forces were serving other purposes in the, in the area at the same time. And some fraction, some some fraction of those forces would have been there anyway, even if Saddam Hussein had been a perfectly nice gentleman, and we had no security threats uh, related to um, to Iraq. So I'll come back and make use of this number as well sometimes. Now, the other key the other key element that you need to address in order to come up with a cost of containment is some assessment of how long the regime would survive. Um, so, and why, why do we need to make this assessment? Because the, the, the alternative to which we're going to compare this is war and regime change, where the costs are much more front-loaded. Okay, so the, or they're certainly going to be distributed differently over time. So, at the end of the day, we're going to be forced to make a present value comparison, an expected present value comparison of some sort. Um, there's no other sensible way to compare these two policies in terms of their costs. Uh, and so you have to take a stand on how long the, the regime would survive. I should, I should say there's, there's one other thing which I, 
I forgot to mention, um, but it, in words, it was said on one of the slides. For now, I'll, I'll relax this assumption later, but for now, I'm going to cost out the containment policy under the assumption that it would, that it would succeed in achieving its objectives, its national security objectives with probability one. Okay, so I'm setting aside the possibility that containment would somehow fail. I'll come back to that later. Okay, so how do, how do we assess um, the survivability of the regime? And, and what's relevant here is how long, not how long Saddam Hussein would live, but how long the regime that was in place prior to March 2003 uh, would have survived absent the war uh, in a hostile and, and uh, dangerous form. Okay, that's, that's the question I want to address. Um, it's very difficult to come up with a precise uh, answer to this question. Here are the elements uh, that colored our thinking about it. Uh, first, the regime itself uh, survived a devastating war with Iran uh, from 1980 to 1988. Uh, it survived a crushing military defeat in the Gulf War of 91. Uh, 12 years of draconian sanctions. This was one of the most um, well-enforced draconian sanctions regime that I think the uh, United Nations has, has and, and uh, other countries have ever imposed. And there was an extraordinary decline in real per capita income um, during the tenure of Saddam Hussein, which he assumed the presidency in, in, in 79. All this suggests to us that the regime had the capacity to... Um, survive enormous shocks. It had already done so. Um, in addition, and this is just based on my reading of, of what uh, national security experts were saying before the war. I'm not an expert in this area, but my understanding is that Saddam's family and associates, uh, including his sons, uh, had a firm grip on the apparatus of terror and repression uh, that the regime used to maintain control of the population. That also suggested to us that this was a regime that was likely to continue uh, for quite some time, absent any external intervention. There are, there are many other examples of repressive regimes that showed a great deal of staying power. Some of them are listed here. So there's our conclusion. We, we thought that absent some external intervention, this was a regime that was hard to dislodge. It would probably have persisted in a dangerous form for a long time. Now, that's a probabilistic statement. And so the way we've handled that is to um, assume that Absent some external intervention, the regime would, in any given year, with a 3% probability, peacefully morph into something benign. Okay? And we're going to, fact, we're going to use that 3% probability in our analysis. And, and just to help you think about that, that implies an expected duration of a hostile regime from 2003 forward of 33 years. Okay? So you might think that's too long or too short. You know, if time permits, we'll talk about some other assumptions in this regard. Just to put it into context, um, if you date the, the onset of the regime from, from Saddam Hussein's assumption of the presidency, um, that implies a total expected regime duration of 57, uh, 57 years. You might argue the regime began before Saddam Hussein's presidency. You might, so that would give you a somewhat larger number. A couple of comparisons there. This seems like it's in the right ballpark. Uh, the Soviet Union survived 69 years. The, the, the North Korean regime has been in place for more than 50 years. Okay, so I'm now giving you all the elements of, of the analysis for the cost of containment and, and the, base, the basic idea behind how we put those elements together. So we've got an annual flow cost of containment. 
we've got two sources of discounting the future. There's the time value, the usual time value of money source. That's the uh, what I've called capital R of I here. And then there's this probability that the regime will peacefully morph into something benign in the absence of any external intervention. Um, I'll take my baseline uh, real discount rate as 2% per year. Where did I get that number? That was the real interest rate facing the U.S. government um, on long-term bonds as of uh, 2002. And so there's some other, that's, the, that's this discount rate here. Okay, so that's a real discount rate. There's, you can see how the numbers are effective. Some people have argued that um, one ought to use larger discount rates in a different context, like climate change. People argue for smaller discount rates. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll focus on the 2% discount rate. If you put that together, and here's our baseline case. Annual flow cost discounted at 2% and the 3% regime change probability gives you a present value cost estimate of about $300 billion for the containment policy. Okay? If you, if you think that, uh, say, a th this reflects saying a third of those costs were, were, um, uh, were you, know, you shouldn't really attribute to the containment of Iraq because U.S. troops would have been there. Any, some, some smaller number of U.S. forces would have been in the region even if the regime had been a benign one. Um, that gives you a number like $200 billion. So I'm going to take, in our baseline case, the, the cost of containment, assuming the and, and this is not, a, not allowing for any bad eventualities that might arise under containment. I'll come back to that later. But the cost is somewhere between about $200 billion and $300 billion. Okay, so I'll take those as, as, as kind of good case, uh, best case scenarios for what the expected present value cost of containment was. So I, uh, let, let me see if there are any questions or comments about what I've talked about so far. Bruce, said, uh, Bruce suggested I might say that I'm from the University of Chicago and we're accustomed to people interrupting us uh, while we talk, so feel free. Go ahead. Or, or 33 years forward from, from 2003. That's the assumption that's here. Yeah, I agree it is important. Um, I, it's not obvious to me that containment costs would have gone up or down relative to this baseline. I don't, I don't have, we look, I don't have good numbers about the, about the um, forces that were in place Kind of continuously um, since '91, so I can't I can't really speak in terms of the evidence about whether the the force level was rising or declining. We do know, and I, we talked some about this in the paper, that there were episodes where where the U.S. and its allies considerably increased the force levels uh, in the region. This happened in '94, '96, and '98. Uh, those are the main episodes. So I, I guess the view is that. Um, if you're going to enforce the northern and southern no-fly zones, and my own perception, and I'll just put it on the table, is that enforcing the nor northern fly zone was was um, essential to preventing the renewed slaughter of Kurds. 
Um, I don't see that's going to become any cheaper. Um, we'd already essentially decimated or wiped out the uh, Iraqi Air Force, so it wasn't like somehow there was a deteriorating Air Force that was going to make it cheaper for us to continue operating the northern and southern no-fly zones. Those were the biggest costs uh, to operating the, the policy. So maybe you have some specific idea in mind that uh, this was somehow going to become a cheaper policy. Well, I, I just told you what the main what what I understand to be the main cost elements, and I I accept that argument in in abstract. I don't see how that argument has a lot of force with respect to the northern and southern no-fly zones. Right. Um, the other thing I should mention is there were, again, I'm I'm not a national security expert, but there were certainly um, there were certainly folks, and I think of Ken, Kenneth Pollock in his book The Threatening Storm, who took a very different view, which was that containment was becoming increasingly unsustainable, more for political reasons than for, for straight military capability reasons. Is there, is there another comment or question over here? Yes? Is the containment Well, everything here is expressed in real terms, okay? So, uh, and it's all, it's all expressed in 2003 dollars. So if you want to translate these into current dollars, you basically want to increase them by about 10%. That'll be true throughout the talk. I should should have mentioned that at the outset. Everything's expressed in two thousand three dollars. You want to express them in current dollars? They'd be roughly ten percent higher. That's 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 a, that's for all the numbers I show you. Yes. Well, it wasn't the baseline. It was it was simply an example I pointed to to make the point that it's plausible that repressive regimes last a long time. And I said, um, this, I, I, my argument had three elements to it. First, I said, this is a repressive regime that has already survived major blows. Okay? Second, it's my understanding from reading what, what others in, who are experts in the area say is that the succession levers were in place for this regime, as they were in North Korea. So Saddam's sons in particular, but more generally his associates in the Tikriti clan, seem to have their hands on the apparatus of terror and repression. The third element of the argument, this is where the Soviet Union came up, I pointed to these other examples of repressive regimes that last a long time. And that's just to make the point that uh, just because people are miserable under a regime um, and are opposed to the regime doesn't mean the regime's going to have a short life. Uh, that was an explicit policy objective after World War II. Right, and certainly been an explicit objective in North Korea. So you might, the North Korean case is probably a better, it's probably closer, closer parallel to Iraq than uh, the Soviet Union is. But I, mean, I mentioned those examples because Everybody knows them. Uh, containment was an explicit aspect of our policy, although obviously the, the scale of the Soviet Union um, and its military resources um, are quite different than those, those of Iraq. Okay? All right, let, let me get on to, the, on to how we handle the war. Um, the, the issues here are, are at least as difficult in trying to assess um, the war. And, and just 
one one difficulty at the outset is you have to you have to take a stand on what what level of success you're going to try to cost um, because I think this has often not not been a clear uh, in, in public discussion not been a very clear element of the uh, of the discussion so here is here is the level of success that we are trying to cost it's got two main elements uh, the first is establishing a stable uh, secure uh, a stable regime in Iraq that doesn't threaten U.S. national security interests, and second, doesn't engage in large-scale oppression of its own people or others. Okay, now this is a um, less ambitious level of success than I think uh, many of the proponents of the Iraq War had. Uh, many people talked about Iraq as being uh, a beacon of liberty and an exemplar of market capitalism uh, in the Middle East um, that would. Um, you know, dramatically turn around the entire region by way of example. Um, so I think if one wanted to aim for that more ambitious goal, that were the level of success we were trying to cost, it would be more than what we're costing because it would certainly require more in the way of reconstruction assistance than the numbers that, that, that we're going to look at. Um, okay, so that's, the, that's, that's what I'm taking as the, the objective that I'm going to try to cost out from this ex-ante perspective. Now, which U.S. cost do we include? Okay, so military resources, capital, labor, and supplies, and I'm going to take a very much the same approach with respect to military resources that I took for containment. Okay, I want to try to do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison in that respect. Um, but now I'm going to explicitly take into account something which I ignored in the containment policy because it was small, which is the value of lost lives and um, injuries. Okay, I want to I take the economist standard approach to the uh, value of a statistical life and, and uh, apply that here and uh, to, to, to injuries as well. Also, lifetime medical costs uh, for uh, U.S. personnel that sustain injuries in Iraq. And then U.S. outlays for humanitarian assistance and reconstruction aid. Those are the things I want to include in my, that I'm, go I'm going to try to include in my cost measure. Now, here's an outline. There's a tremendous amount of detail uh, here, and I'm, let me, I want to give you an outline of what we do. I will tell you the most important assumptions. I'll show you a summary of all of them, and we can discuss them as you, as you wish. So in terms of costing the war outline, we, we kind of break it down into four pieces. Um, first, there's the initial deployment, uh, the major combat phase of the war, and the redeployment. This is the part of the, of the effort that got almost all that received almost all of the attention in terms of costs before the war. This is where all this is where the CBO studies and the and the House Budget Committee studies uh, were focused. Um, this is what the administration was certainly focused on. Uh, we will, in terms of the military scenarios, we'll take two scenarios that the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, considered in late 2002, based on what was then their understanding of the military plans. They weren't privy to the details of the military plans, but evidently based on their conversations with military personnel, they thought these two options were in the ballpark. My sense is what they call the heavy air options, which involved about 250,000 U.S. military forces in theater, is roughly in the ballpark of what happened Okay, uh, in, the, in the initial phase of the war. Then there's the post-war occupation. Okay, And here again, we're going to pursue an approach which in terms of some of the inputs parallels to what we did on, on the containment side. However, now we're going to allow for different operation tempos, which lead to different um, uh, depreciation rates on capital goods and are associated with different casualty rates. Okay, so we're going to uh, 
I should also say the, the CBO, the, the early CBO studies really didn't treat capital costs in at all a satisfactory way. They basically treated capital as free because you've already built it. And, um, and so we, we aren't, I'm not taking the CBO cost numbers. I'm taking the CBO military scenarios, taking their cost numbers and then adding additional costs onto that, mainly for the user cost of capital. Um, and we'll do that in the, in the occupation phase as well. For, for the cost of casualties, we, we rely heavily on a study by Walston and Kosick. Essentially, I think it's fair to say we don't do any original research on this. Um, we, we rely on, on uh, for the raw inputs, a cost of uh, fatality of about $7 million per, per fatality and smaller amounts for injuries. And that, the, I refer you to the Walston and Kosick study. I, I think it's a reasonably careful treatment drawing on the extensive economics literature on, on, the, on, the, on the value of a statistical life um, and a, a much smaller literature um, on the uh, extent and severity of injuries in, in uh, combat situations and lifetime medical costs. And then humanitarian assistance and reconstruction aid. So these are the four elements that I'm going to try to put together. Now, there was obviously a great deal of uncertainty before the war as to what might happen. Uh, as a consequence of the war and its aftermath, the way we try to deal with that is, I'm gonna, is we consider a whole range of different scenarios that range from, the, from rather optimistic and, and, in, and in hindsight uh, wildly optimistic um, to um, very pessimistic, basically a failure. So, so let me just give you a sense of what we do here by telling you about some of the extremes and then the, and then the ones that, we, that, that seem worth focusing on. So here's a scenario which I think is not too much different than what advocates of the war within the administration thought would happen. Um, short war, to, uh, combat phase of the war, two months. An occupation of about two and a third years afterwards. Um, occupation force of initially about 100,000 troops declining linearly to zero um, about, uh, about two and a half years after the, on, after the invasion itself. With U.S. fatalities of about 500 during the combat phase of the war, that is the first two months, and about 500 additional ones during the occupation phase. Modest U.S. costs for humanitarian assistance and, and uh, reconstruction aid. Okay, that's the most optimistic war scenario I'm going to consider. There's seven different scenarios considered in the paper. Um, I think five and six are the ones which seem to us um, the most likely to materialize as when we wrote this in February 2006. So much of the paper focuses on those. Um, and I'll do that in much of the talk, too. So what's scenario five? Three months of major combat, a five-year occupation after the end of the combat phase, a major insurgency, about 5,000 U.S. fatalities. I'll come back to injuries in a second. Somewhere between 30 and 50-some billion in humanitarian reconstruction aid. Uh, scenario six is a more pessimistic version of the same scenario. It's a 10-year occupation, uh, a major insurgency, 7,000 U.S. fatalities, 60 billion in aid. Scenario seven, basically the, the whole thing fails. We're there for, we're, we, have, we have an occupation uh, which continues for 10 years after the end of major combat. Uh, there are uh, 7,000 U.S. fatalities during this occupation. There's $60 billion in, in aid given. But basically, in 2014, we decided the whole thing failed, and we revert to the containment policy, or at least we revert to a policy which is as expensive in, in annual flow costs 
as the pre-war containment policy. Okay, so scenario seven is clearly the whole thing was a bad idea, um, and all we did was waste um, lives in in billions over a ten-year period, and then return to what we'd been doing before that. So those are those, that's a, they give you a sense of the range. Uh, now, there's a number of common assumptions we make across all these scenarios. So our idea here, which we wanted, we wanted to try to build the analysis in a way that we could easily scale up or down the level of U.S. involvement in a way, so that we could make reasonably transparent comparisons across scenarios. So th there, are, there are a number of detailed assumptions here, and I won't go through all of them, but I want to highlight some of the main ones, which I've got the more important ones, which are in, in green. So as I look across all these scenarios, which in, and the, the most important difference across these scenarios by far is the size and the duration of the occupation period, okay? The second most important difference across these scenarios is the number of U.S. casualties, okay? The, um, throughout, when we do this scaling, we're going to maintain a fixed ratio of ground troops to Navy and Air Force personnel so, during the occupation phase. So as the occupation number of troops goes down, we're going to assume it happens proportionately across the, across the different services. Uh, that, that's one important assumption. Um, you're going to have to refer to the paper to get, to get a sense of the occupation cost in detail, but basically we take that $226,000 per person year figure that I used in containment, we apply that here. We apply, we apply the same capital value amounts as we did in containment. We apply over a higher user cost of capitals than we did in containment. Why? Well, because now these, these, these military equipment are being used more intensively in, in the, under the occupation than they are in the, uh, than they were in the containment phase. It's a bit more intensively when there's a, in the low insurgency cases, it's a lot more intensively and hence a much higher user cost of capital in the major insurgency regimes. Okay, so we're varying, we're varying the user cost of capital as well as the number of fatalities with the intensity, uh, of the, um, of the, of the conflict during the occupation. Now here's another important assumption that we're going to maintain across all the scenarios. We're going to assume, and this, and here I'm relying on information that we have available after the war started. We're going to assume that there's a fixed ratio of 7.15 serious injuries per fatality. And there's, and underneath that is a whole range of different types of injuries of different severities. Okay, and this is based on the actual historical experience from 2003 to sometime in 2005. I don't remember the exact time. So this is, I'm getting this ratio from what actually happened after 2003. And the more severe the injury, the higher the cost that is associated with that. The maximal cost would be $7 million for somebody who loses their life. For somebody who suffered major head trauma and brain damage, it would be close to $7 million. For somebody who, who suffered you know, loss of a finger, it would be a, a, a small fraction of $7 million. Okay? So that, we're going to maintain that, that assumption across all the scenarios. Okay, there's, there's a number of other assumptions there, but those are, I think, the key ones that are maintained commonly. Okay, l let me give you an idea. You put all these together. Um, same 2% discount rate we used before. Um, and um, express things in 2003 dollars. And here's our total cost. So under the most optimistic scenario, it's $106 billion. So, I mean, it's perhaps worth pointing out, if you had an extremely optimistic assessment of what was going to happen in Iraq uh, as a consequence of war and regime change, um, that looked like a bargain 
compared to the alternative, in economic terms, compared to the alternative of continuing the containment policy. These scenarios five and six, which looked to us in 2000, February 2006 as most likely to occur, have, have costs in the 400 to $600 billion range, clearly well above the cost of containment, assuming containment worked just fine. And then uh, this failure this failure case where the whole thing was um, um, just 10 years that came to naught is, is $872 billion. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pressed for time here, so I'm, I have quite a bit more to say. So let me, let me, um, let me skip over some, some things lightly because I, I don't want to focus the entire, my entire presentation on the, on the cost of the U.S. Let's go back to containment. So I gave you the analysis I went through earlier was all predicated on the assumption that the containment policy would be completely successful in achieving its objectives. Okay, that is, it wouldn't fall apart because of uh, political reasons. Uh, I basically summarized here um, concerns that many people had about the containment policy. Um, I think it's fair to say that most of the advocates, most of the advocates of the war and regime change, based their argument, at least in part upon some expressed concern about the viability or success of the containment policy. So again, I think about the, most, the clearest example of this, in my mind at least, is Kenneth Pollack's book, The Threatening Storm, which is very much, he, it's, a, it's a case for going to war in Iraq, and it's very much uh, built around, my, uh, according to my reading, uh, two elements of his view. One, that the containment regime was not, that it was not, that the political, the international political will to sustain the containment regime was eroding and that it would fail in the near future because of that. And second, that once the containment regime dissipated, the, the Iraq would be able to rearm and would present a much more deadly threat in the future. We'd end up fighting a war anyway that would be uh, more expensive than one in 2003. Um, there are other concerns. Some people had concerns about uh, the potential for Iraqi collaboration with international terrorists. Many people were concerned about Iraq's unwillingness uh, to, uh, to, compl to comply with the UN uh, weapons inspections uh, and so on. There was a different, a different type of concern, which I think really comes up more in the later part of my talk, about, look, the containment policy itself uh, had, had dire consequences for the Iraqi population. So the way we try to handle these is... is Setting this last one aside for now that, that is really more relevant to the later parts of the analysis, um, we said let's try, to, let's try to quantify some of these concerns. And, you know, I'm, not, I'm not endorsing anybody's view on these things. I, again, I'm not a national security expert. But I think all the things we try to quantify in the paper um, are, are contingencies that were being um, discussed and concern. They, they were concerns that were held by prominent national security experts um, or, that, or that just struck us as reasonable based on the historical evidence. So I'll give you one here uh, very quickly and, um, talk, and, and talk even more briefly about the others. When I previously costed containment, I took, the, I took the U.S. force level in 2000 and 2001 and kind of treated it as a steady state. This came up in response to the question earlier. Now, if you look at the actual U.S. experience after 91, there were there were at least three major episodes where the U.S. mounted what I what I'm calling here a costly credible threat. Um, and what's a costly credible threat? It means 
the Iraqi regime is doing something you don't like, that you view as a threat, and you bring in a great deal of extra security forces uh, to deal with that threat for a period of time. I think the clearest example of this was in 94, uh, when Iraq began to um, uh, mass troops on its southern border, uh, looked as if it was preparing another invasion, and uh, the U.S. and its allies, principally the U.S., uh, very rapidly beefed up forces in the region. Uh, and then the, the Iraqi regime demobilized, and after a period of time, U.S. forces kind of returned to their steady state. Well, that's what I mean by a costly, credible threat. We, to, to make our deterrence credible in that case, we had to considerably beef up the forces in the, in the region. That's an expensive thing to do. Um, how expensive? Uh, well, here's what it cost, uh, just to give you an idea of, of where we got these numbers for. This is the small. This is the smaller. The smaller scenario that the CBO considered in 2002 of the size of the invasion force. So just taking the invasion force to the theater and bringing it back home, according to the CBO estimates, 26 billion dollars. Now the event I talked about in '94 was not of that same magnitude. I'm not sure exactly how big it was. It was sizable. So. Let's say a, the cost of mounting one of these credible threats is $13 billion. And you might want to pick another number. Maybe you want to pick 5 or $10 billion. But there's some, the, my point is that the historical evidence suggests there are these periodic moments in the relationship with Iraq that required the mounting of a credible threat. That's a cost. Um, here's a picture that just shows you how that would factor into the comparison between war and containment. This is the annual probability of the need for a credible threat. This is starting with the baseline assessment of the cost of containment, the 300 billion we came up with before, how that how the cost of containment rises with the probability of the need for a costly credible threat under the 13 under the case where it's 13 billion dollars to mount a costly credible threat. And then we've compared that to the war scenarios 5 and 6. So you can see that if you, have a, if you have a sufficiently pessimistic view about the frequency with which the United States needed to mount a costly, credible threat, that that will have an impact on your choice between, uh, your assessment between these scenarios here and credible threat. The possibility of a limited war we handle in a similar way. Here's essentially a picture which is motivated by the Pollock argument that I described earlier. Um, and, and here it's structured in a somewhat different way. Now, instead of an annual probability of mounting a costly, credible threat, this is the probability of a major regime-changing war in the first ten, next 10 years if we had decided to continue pursuing the containment policy. So you want to think about this as a war which is triggered by an Iraqi action, but nonetheless you, leads the U.S. to, uh, uh, to go all the way, so to speak, and, and uh, overthrow the regime. Here's, the, here's what that does to the cost calculus if you think that this future war will be as costly as the war, the scenario five war. Okay, so that's not really taking full account of Pollock's argument. If you think the future war will be twice as costly, then this is the line you get. If you think it'll be five times as costly, then you get that. So the, 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 what this picture says is if you had Pollock's view, okay, it's quite easy to see how you would come to a conclusion based strictly on a cost comparison that the war option was preferable to containment. Yeah, Bruce. <clears throat> I mean, is there something that prevents, I mean, so I understand you're saying, look, if the war 
comes after you know during the continued phase is really really costly, and you know it could make sense to do this right. preemptively. It seems like the other story you'd say is look, given that the sort of the, the flow cost of of containment is lower than the cost of going to war, unless you have a really really rosy view, that you're best off just waiting until you need to fight that war, and then the second it shows up. You fight it, and it's you know the costs aren't going to be, you know the costs aren't going to be substantially higher. So I mean, it seems like yeah, I mean that, uh, that that's a maybe a reasonable argument. That wasn't that wasn't Pollock's view. Pollock's view, I think, was that once the sanctions regime eroded, Iraq would be able to rearm, so it would be more of a military threat. Second, that then the war would become come at a time of its choosing rather than the U.S.'s choosing. That those are the elements of his argument, as I understand it. Yes. Uh, a couple of questions. One is one scenario that was discussed two, three years ago before by Colin Powell is the buildup was not nearly big enough. It seems to me you have tools to model that situation and would it, assuming it would have been effective to use twice as many troops or yeah. times or whatever it was, stabilize the regime, make it a much shorter <laughs> Have you thought about putting that into this framework? Um, we've thought about it. We haven't done it. I think it's a, it's a very natural idea. Um, one one reason we didn't do it, other than just the paper's already long enough, um, is it's unclear to me whether the U.S. actually had the manpower to implement that. And um, I, I, and the, my understanding is if the U.S. had wanted to put, say, a half million troops into the theater for a short period of time, it could have done so. But its ability to sustain that would have been quite limited. And, and there, there were many, there were quite a few pre-war studies, well, not quite a few, there were some by the CBO that tried to, tried to assess uh, what was the maximum sustainable ground force the U.S. could maintain in Iraq at, at, at standard rotation ratios. It's not that big a number, and you can see, and it's clear from, the, from what's happened now that we're, we're, we've been pushing up against that. So somewhere around 150,000, 200,000 troops on the ground uh, in the theater, um, this is my just assessment from reading the newspaper, is, is close to our maximum sustainable um, ground presence without, without uh, major, major strains on the U.S. military force. So that, that strategy you've described is in some respects a higher risk strategy because things might have turned out great if, in fact, the security had been established early on. You could have started economic reconstruction much more effectively. Then we could have wound down the um, uh, the occupying force. But if if that hadn't happened, if 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 the 500,000 troops weren't enough to to set things off on the right course, then we would have really been in a bad situation because because we would have then been forced to deal with the uh, um, the aftermath of the initial occupation with a with a smaller force than we've got now. Second question. This is all from the American point of view. If you incorporate the Iraqi point of view, say fatalities or whatever under the regime, and containment, declining uh, per capita GDP, versus some estimates of fatality under this scenario with uh, you know invasion and so on. Do you have some numbers there? Yeah. So let, let me get that. Let me get to that. So I'm going to skip over. Here's a, like a grand consideration of all these different contingencies under containment. I will skip over that. I want to get to your question. Okay, and I'm, I'm, I'll do it fairly briefly. So two things. Um, so the, the paper has a fair amount of discussion about the economic record under Saddam Hussein. And um, it's really quite an extraordinary um, collapse in living standards. I, I don't think there are many 
many many examples where where a, a single regime has survived uh, in 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 such a with, with such a dramatic downturn. So real real per capita GDP as near as we can estimate fell by something like 60 to 87 percent. So that's the range of the estimates that we could come up with from 1979, which is when Hussein took the, assumed the presidency and kind of undisputed uh, control of the country, uh, to 2001, okay? Um, that's, that's the decline in GDP per capita. Now, that's, that's at constant prices. So this is without factoring in the decline of, of export prices on petroleum yet. So that's the next bullet point. The real income per capita fell by some larger amount, according to these numbers, because if you, if you recall, 1979 was a period of peak uh, peak uh, prices of petroleum. So, so the economy was doing very well then, um, partly because um, oil prices were very high. Now, I think those numbers there, the first two bu bullet points, actually understate the decline in living standards for a couple of reasons, uh, three reasons really. First, over this period, there was also after the uh, after Saddam Hussein uh, assumed the presidency, there was also a, um, a tremendous militarization of the society. Okay, it was already a militarized society somewhat before Hussein, but the numbers that we've been able to piece together suggest it became uh, much more militarized afterwards. That's partly as a consequence of the long, devastating war with Iran, but it's also partly because uh, Saddam felt it was necessary to uh, build up his internal repression apparatus of security forces and so on. So here's the only numbers I've been able to find on this, and I, how reliable these are, I don't know. These are the only numbers I've come across. If you just take uh, and this military and security forces in Iraq, this comes from Pollock's book, in the mid-90s, and you divide by estimates of formal sector employment in Iraq, then the number of police, military, and security personnel in Iraq account for 25% of all of total formal sector employment. That gives you an idea of how heavily militarized this society was. So not only is there a collapse in, in real GDP per capita, but there's a huge diversion of resources to military and police forces. There's also a very large diversion of resources to Saddam's palaces. He built himself something like 50 palaces uh, um, over, this, over the period of his uh, tenure. And then there's the sanctions, which limited supply of critical goods in ways that probably don't, aren't fully reflected in those numbers. So the regime presided over a period of just an extraordinary collapse in living standards. And that, that colored our thinking about you know, what, what war meant for... Um, what war meant for uh, uh, Iraqi living standards. One other point that's relevant here is the average annual revenue shortfall that's estimated from the lost oil revenues that could have been earned under containment if, there had, if you hadn't had the, uh, the sanctions regime in place, they amounted to about 40 to 50% of Iraq's GDP in 2001. So our view then and still is now, my view still is now, barring a full-scale civil war. I'll skip over the formal assumptions, but I'll just tell you what the bottom line is. We, we basically took the following approach. We think over the course of a generation after the war, Iraq's going to recover at least part way, say at least half, at least 50% to where it was in 1979 in terms of per capita GDP. Okay? Not... not not get way better than it was, but it recover at least 50% to where it was in per capita GDP. And that this would happen, you know, roughly, fairly smoothly over the 20-year period after regime change. If you accept that premise, 
okay? And you have any kind of, and, and you have, um, if you accept that premise, and even if you push up the, um, the probability of a spontaneous peaceful regime change to as high as 8 9%, you're driven to the conclusion that in terms of economic welfare, Iraqis will be better off as a consequence of the war. Now, this is not a statement that they're going to be better off in, in, in contemporaneously in 2003. It's a statement that when you, when you integrate forward over the, over the lifetime of Iraqis, that they're going to be better off in strictly economic terms as a consequence of um, the regime change. And that's simply because things had deteriorated so much under the regime that there was a lot of upside. That, that's that's the, the logic of the argument. We can, there's, a lot of, there's, there's a lot of details that go into the, a precise number, but the, the details don't matter much. That's basically what I just mentioned for you. And you okay, let, let's get to the last thing, and then I'll, we'll, we'll stop for questions, the last topic. Um, just um, the, the gruesome toll uh, for Iraqis um, under um, the two options. So... And in here, I, I think both options were bad for Iraqis. Uh, that, that was my view. Um, here's, here's just a summary of some of the um, deaths, the premature deaths of Iraqis that occurred um, under the regime. Um, and these numbers are partly making the point that this was a terrible, brutal regime, that... Um, killed large numbers of people when it had the capacity. Um, and also they're making the point that um, these deaths continued at a high rate, although not as high, um, after 1991 through a combination of sanctions and uh, the repression implemented by the regime. So if you know anything about Iraq, you already know this. If you know anything about the history of Iraq. So the low-end estimates of the number of Iraqis who were killed in the war with Iran, which... which I guess I understand to be uh, initiated by Iraq, but I, others might have a different view. Um, 200,000, uh, at least 200,000 Iraqis killed in battle uh, during the uh, eight-year war with uh, Iran. Um, Iranian casualties are thought to be uh, twice as high. Okay, so we're talking about several hundred thousand uh, Iranian uh, deaths. Uh, 200,000 Kurds uh, who were slaughtered, um, uh, many with gas in 88 and 89, and um, hundreds of thousands of more uh, forcibly displaced. There were somewhere between 10,000 and 35,000 Iraqi deaths um, in the Gulf War of 1991, um, and there were some, obviously some number of Kuwaitis. There were a few Allied troops uh, who were killed as well, though not very many compared to the... Um, uh, number of um, Iraqi deaths, and then there were some. There were tens of thousands. I don't. I'm not aware of any good number, hard numbers on this. But there were tens of thousands of Iraqi Shiites killed, mostly in the south, um, in in a repression by the regime after the '91 war, when when the uh, the central regime was reestablishing, reasserting its control over the south. There were also um, several hundred thousand Marsh Arabs whose um, homeland and way of life were systematically destroyed. These people were displaced. This also happened in the early years after the war. And then something which, is, which attracted a huge amount of attention um, and in many wild numbers, um, but 
there's no doubt that many Iraqis, uh, often children, died prematurely under the containment regime because, because of malnutrition and uh, lack of access to uh, critical sanitation and uh, critical medicines and so on. Um, you can read the pa- you can read the paper if you, you can see the, the source of our numbers. Um, the hundred thousand number is, I understand, to be a low end estimate of the number of people who died uh, under the sanctions regime through malnutrition and um, poor sanitation and lack of access to critical medicines. So, uh, you know exactly what would have happened um, under containment is very hard to say. Um, our sense from reading from reading other sources, and again, we aren't experts in this area, is that if things had continued as they had been um, um, during the during the few years prior to the um, to the war, that it's reasonable to guess that somewhere between uh, ten and thirty thousand Iraqis would have lost their lives per year prematurely. Um, again, many of these children. Um, so let's let's that's the number I'm going to work with. I'm going to take I'm going to take that range of ten to ten to thirty thousand. And then I'm going to, my baseline is again 3% probability in any, any given year that this regime would have peacefully morphed into a benign one. 2% discount rate on future lost lives. This gives you a present value cost in terms of lost Iraqi lives of continuing the containment policy of 2003. And this was the number that we thought was appropriate to think about comparing to the uh, lives likely to be lost. Um, by Iraqis um, under a war option. Um, there's some discussion in the paper, and here again, it's very, it was very difficult based on um, what was known in 2003 to assess the cost uh, to Iraqis. Um, there were some pre-war estimates. Um, I think basically, they ranged, uh, other, th- other than groups that talked about the use of chemical and nuclear weapons, and there were some discussions of that. Um, people, some people worried that Iraq would use chemical weapons either deliberately on its own population or accidentally killing many of its own populations. But aside from that, I think uh, the, the estimated range of Iraqi fatalities were typically in the range of 10 to 100,000 as a consequence of the war and its near-term aftermath. And um, this, there's another guy at Brookings whose name escapes me at the moment who did maybe the most compelling analysis of this sort, basically by looking at many different military interventions and looking at the, the civilian casualties as a consequence of the military intervention and then scaling up to the Iraq population. What we, say, what we said in the paper is, is um, in, 2000, in February 2006, we don't, it's very difficult to judge how many Iraqis um, would die prematurely as a, under a war scenario, um, but that it was our sense that short of a civil war, the number would likely be much less than the 200 to 600,000 figure that we have here. Um, I, I guess I still think that assessment is correct. Um, and, of course, what's, what's unclear at this point is whether, uh, whether, well, two things are unclear. One, how long the current levels of, sext- of sectarian strife will occur, will continue. And I should note here that in 2006, I mean, my, my understanding is there were roughly 35,000 Iraqis killed violently. Um, and um, that's, that's above our high-end estimate of what would happen under the regime on a flow basis. So if the, if the, if the state of affairs in 2006 uh, were to continue indefinitely, 
then that would be worse for Iraqis, according to our analysis, in terms of lost lives. Obviously, the question is whether it will, con- whether it will continue indefinitely, and also whether the, another question is whether the situation would deteriorate even further into something like a full-scale civil war in which there could be tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people uh, killed uh, in the space of, of a few months or, or a year or two. So I think I will pause there, and uh, I'm sure you have lots of questions. There's, there's, there's many things to talk about here. Uh, so let me, yes. Right. Uh, very briefly, we basically set all R&D costs aside. And what's the implicit assumption there is that the U.S. expenditures in R&D will be the same under the two policy options. I think what's happened in, in, in retrospect, there has been some additional R&D related to things like body armor and vehicle armor. Um, and that, that's not factored into this analysis. And so I think that's an, that's an element of cost um, that's, that isn't reflected in our numbers. I don't know. I, I have not. Uh, I have not been able to, to determine that. I've, not, I've made a really serious effort, but but I but I don't know. Your other question about oil prices. I guess um, my, there there have been numbers I regarded as uh, without much foundation bandied about as to the um, the impact of the Iraq War on on petroleum prices. Uh, I, I find these analyses the analyses I've seen on this point um, wholly unconvincing. And just just to make, uh, I won't, we can talk about it at length afterwards. But the basic point is, the the shortfall in in uh, petroleum supply uh, in Iraq after the war, relative to the pre-war production levels, is on the order of a few hundred thousand barrels of petroleum per day. Um, that's less than one percent of the world's supply uh, of of crude, of of crude petroleum. So, but nonetheless, some people have attributed uh, five, ten, or dollars more of the increase in the price of oil through 2005 or early 2006 to the Iraq intervention. I don't think there's any basis for that. Um, I think the Iraq the Iraq war has largely been a non-event in terms of the longer-term uh, movements in oil prices. So, I don't see it as a major factor, even though I realize other people have. Uh, yes. And there were arguments of that sort, and um, look, it, it's certainly it's certainly plausible, and in fact, it's still plausible that if the security situation comes under control in Iraq, that that Iraq's petroleum production will greatly exceed uh, in the in the next five or ten years what it had been after '91. And the reason that's plausible is a Iraq's got, as I understand, this, the world's second largest petroleum reserves. And second, that they had much larger oil output um, in the before the nine, before the invasion of Kuwait. Um, so I don't remember off the top of my head. My recollection is there, maybe somebody here knows that they were at one time producing five million barrels a day of oil or something in that ballpark. And and uh, under the sanctions regime, they were they were producing uh, typically two and a half million barrels a day or less 
since the war, I think it's been more around like 1.8, 2, 2 million barrels a day. So there's a lot of upside there. But again, let's say Iraq went from um, from uh, the current two, two, around 2 million barrels a day to 5 million barrels a day. Well, that's... Get, that's around 2%, 3% of world production. Um, that's a lot of money for Iraqis. It, it would certainly go a long ways towards um, the reconstruction of Iraq. It would probably have a modest impact on the world price of petroleum. That's that's my view. Yes? No, no, you're mischaracterizing the first part of the argument I gave. The first analysis of containment I went through had it, took as a premise that the policy would succeed indefinitely in achieving its objectives, okay? So it was only later on when I brought into account, and I went over this part of the discussion quickly, some contingencies under which the containment policy um, would erode or fail. Now, as a matter of logic, it's pretty obvious that if you're sufficiently pessimistic about the prospects for the containment policy to remain viable, that it'll look less and less attractive as a policy option. And what we tried to do was put some particular numbers on that. Um, and if you have some priors about the likelihood that the containment policy would erode and what that would mean um, about the, um, um, the, the cost of the events in the wake of that, well, then the pictures and tables I showed you will translate that into a, a particular cost of continuing the, the containment regime. I, I don't see that. I don't see the circularity in that, um, unless. Well, then you're leaving out the scenario in which the containment gradually erodes. You're talking about what would happen to me. By erode, you mean? By by erode, you mean? You mean we don't need it anymore, or it's not effective anymore? Right. Ah, maybe less dire for Iraqis, but more cost, more costly for Americans. Right. Oh, okay. I, I, I misunderstood the question. I think the first time. Yeah. No, no, I, th I think that's fair. Um, I, I don't, I don't really disagree with that. I think there's a there's a countervailing argument, um, which is um, that um, the impact of the sanctions was cumulative in its effect, even as the sanctions were eroding. So this is a force that doesn't negate your point, but it goes the other way. And I think this is this seems quite clear in retrospect in terms of the extent of the deterioration of the public infrastructure in Iraq, the lack of critical parts to maintain uh, water systems and sanitation systems and, and uh, power systems. And so even, so that, that aspect of the sanctions regime, even though I agree with you, sanctions may have been eroding, um, the effect of them may have been intensifying over time. And, you know, what, what's the balance of those two forces? Uh, I don't know.
Yeah, that sounds reasonable. I don't, I don't know whether that's right um, because my understanding of what, it, of what took place under the sanctioned regime, it's not, just a, it's not just a consequence of how onerous the sanctions were that were imposed externally, but, um, how the, di- but the distribution of foodstuffs and medical supplies internally, which, as I understand it, except for the Kurdish region, was controlled by the Baghdad regime, and that um, these 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 foodstuffs and critical medicines were often directed away from groups that that Saddam regarded as his traditional enemies, and so that um, there continued to be a lot of lost lives through this interaction between the sanctions and the and the uh, repressive nature of the regime, um, and um, some that it's not clear why that how that would have uh, dissipated absent some erosion, not just of the sanctions, but of the uh, control apparatus of the regime. Uh, other, other comments or questions? Yes, sir. Um, I was just wondering if Poland talks to any in his book about uh, an operation like Desert Fox where we use cruise missiles and uh, in the aftermath of actually going into Iraq, we found how successful those really were when, in fact, in the build-up to the war, they were seen as Pretty much no effect on the Iraqi regime, and something like that. Instead of just a containment policy of Iraqi <clears throat> security forces going in every five, six years, where I think they're amassing too much force and using something like a cruise missile attack to take it back down. On them. So, a couple of things. Um, my, my understanding of Desert Fox is that it was implemented in response to the refusal of the regime to readmit the UN weapons inspectors. And that it was viewed as a failure in part because, despite a rather massive application of force, it did not it did not get the regime to capitulate to allowing weapons inspectors. Um, that's that's my recollection of the way Pollock characterizes it, and I, I may be incorrect about that, but that's that's my recollection. Um, as to the second part of your point, though, I do think it it does it does appear in retrospect that the sanctions regime, including the, um, the use of, of cruise missiles, but not limited to that, that the sanctions regime was more effective in eroding the military capabilities of, of, the, uh, of Saddam's regime than was realized at the time. Um, and that's, I think, that's, so I think there's, there's something to that, that in retrospect it looks like just the continual application of of sanctions and occasional applications of large military forces um, might have been enough to perpetually keep the regime um, on its heels and not in a position to cause great harm to anybody other than its own its own people. I don't think that was the perception at the time. It certainly wasn't the perception by Pollock, and and I think my my impression is by and large people um, underestimated the effectiveness of this of the containment policy in in eroding the military capabilities of the regime. Uh, in the back, and then I'll come up here.
Yeah, but I think, uh, well, we didn't, we didn't conceive of the problem that way. We didn't try to break it out partly because it's hard, as you're suggesting. But also, I think that the, I think that the source of the premature deaths in the war, after the war, are very different than the sources during the regime. They're not malnutrition and lack of access to critical medicines now. They're mainly a consequence of violence. Yeah, but that was a very short period. And, and, Yeah, but you've got access to antibiotics and things like that now. Right. Yeah, no, I, I take your point. Um, I don't I don't know of any, I, I had not read as of late 2005 any good empirical studies on this issue. doesn't mean there weren't any. I hadn't seen any, and I had, I had not absorbed any at that point. Uh, maybe there are some. Um, I certainly, my remarks today um, were predicated on the view which that most of the premature Iraqi deaths in the aftermath of the war are a consequence of violence, uh, overt violence, and not a consequence of the same kinds of sh- food shortages and medicine shortages and, and uh, that, that were the main problem before the war. But I may be wrong about that. I don't know. Yes? Yes? Ah. Uh, yeah, basic the basic idea, and there there are many studies of this sort, but they're all they're all kind of predicated on the following idea. People make choices in their in their lives that implicitly reveal the value of some probabilistic effect of dying. It may be the kind of job you take, it may be the transportation mode you undertake, and so people are making choices all the time. May, even things like do. To, to go into the military, I don't know what what does it take. So, look, compensating differentials for jobs, uh, how much you pay, how much extra you're willing to pay for a car that has uh, better crash rating uh, capabilities, and so um, so there there are many different sources of variation, but they all are predicated upon that idea that there's a revealed, there's an implicit revealed willingness to pay to avoid, in a probabilistic sense some bad thing happening to you, the ultimate being death. And that uh, and that, that you can recover from that you know, with enough effort, some estimate of the value people place on their own lives. The 7 million number is an estimate, I think, an average estimate across many studies for an adult American of kind of average means. Obviously, it's going to be sensitive to things like age and, uh, and uh, income and so on. So... Yes. Um, regarding the scenarios you choose to present, um, you know, in Pollock's book, the war policy that he talks about um, is fairly different from the one that you talked about because his uh, preference, if you recall, was to go in with the United Nations Security Council approval, okay, which theoretically could have um, drastically decreased the costs as far as uh, economic costs to the United States 
and human costs for Iraqis. Um, and what I'm wondering is if you're not, in a sense, what I see is you're sort of saying that, at least in a human sense, uh, like uh, containment could have been more costly than war. Um, and you're taking a tough case of war, whereas Pollock's case or alternative ways in which the war could have been waged would have cut down on this number of deaths and most likely the economic cost to the U.S. as well. And I'm wondering if you've run a scenario such as that and what that might do to your analysis. Well, you can take well, – no, I haven't run exactly a scenario like that, but um, you can reinterpret some of the scenarios we do consider – as um, in that light, so you can say, okay, um, maybe it's really scenario four, but the U.S. force level required is what I called scenario three because other countries would be making up the difference. So there's nothing um, the, the, the kind of, I mean, basically this apparatus we constructed here, you can scale up or down as you see fit. I mean, you know, I can send you the programs. You can modify them as you wish. Um, on the on your larger premise of your question, though, I, I guess I'm skeptical uh, for, for a number of reasons. Um, whether or not the U.S. And, and its allies had legal sanction internationally um, to proceed with an invasion, I think, is a question. People differ on that. Um, I'm not a scholar of international law. I'm not even sure that's the right, the right place to place the emphasis. Uh, second, it's worth remembering that... Um, there were 20 or so countries that participated, uh, a large number of countries that participated militarily in the invasion. Now, they almost all participated in a small-scale way, uh, with the exception of uh, Britain foremost and then a few other places like Australia and Poland. Um, I guess you could argue that, um, A, a lot more countries would have participated, but there aren't very many countries that really have the military resources to participate in an effective way. Um, so I guess you could argue that, of the countries that did participate in a serious way, like Australia, maybe the Australians would have sent more. Maybe the South Koreans would have sent more troops uh, if there had been um, um, a, UN, a, a more uh, explicit UN blessing. Um, but I think the, the I think it's uh, the, there aren't there aren't very many countries in the world that are equipped to do the kind of uh, uh, major combat or heavy duty. Um, pacification of an insurgency that the U.S. and Britain are. So I don't, I'm not sure who else would have helped us out. I mean, the, the, the other point though, that I wanted to make was that, um, you know, one of the reasons that people generally agree that the insurgency has been so fierce is because this was perceived as a largely unilateral American action, okay? And if it wasn't perceived in said way, the insurgency would be not as strong and potentially I, yeah, people make that argument. I find that uh, highly doubtful as well. Um, well. One of the points that's become clear, and just despite administration claims to the contrary early on, is that um, foreign fighters, um, although they, they engage in some of the most violent acts in Iraq, are a small part of the total uh, people who are engaged in, in um, they're trying to pull down the regime or, or intersectarian strife. So it's mostly Iraqis killing Iraqis. And I'm not sure why Iraqis would have reacted much differently to an invasion if the guys had been wearing some UN helmets or something. Um, so, so I, I guess I I understand people make that argument. I don't personally find that a very um, persuasive line. 
Um, yes? Thought about it. Um, I mean, I, I listed at the outset several elements of the containment policy, and I asked myself, well, which of those? Uh, so you take those off the table one at a time. Um, I think taking the no-fly zones off the table, especially in the north, is a non-starter um, because there would have been another. My view is there would have been another slaughter. However, I do think you could imagine um, removing the sanctions. Continuing, other than on other than on military equipment, um, continuing the no-fly zones, continuing the interdict, the maritime interdiction, uh, but allowing Iraq to sell petroleum internationally, um, and um, just try to prevent the country from building up its military forces. Now, that would have required a, I think, a reinvigorated UN weapons inspection process. But anyway, it's, it seems feasible to me that one might at least imagine pursuing a, a, a more limited containment policy that would have allowed the United States and the international community to achieve its objectives with less harm to the Iraqi population. Um, whether that was politically feasible, um, I don't know. I mean, there certainly have been efforts made in that direction. The whole oil for food program um, was motivated in part uh, in that direction, and as we know, um, was mentioned earlier, the oil, the oil for food program did help uh, alleviate some of, this, some of the stress on Iraqis, but it also had a number of very serious problems. Um, so I, so I, I think, you know, one one could imagine we haven't we haven't tried to tackle that seriously, but I think it's a very good point, and um, you can you can extend the logic of the analysis here to say, okay, what what have we done? We've tried to systematically evaluate two options. But you could have imagined other options in 2003. We took these two because these were the two that were, at least in the United States, the ones that were on the table for discussion. But there were, uh, there were other possibilities that certainly had received attention, not as much attention in the public eye. Maybe they should have, got, they should have received more attention, and I'm all for um, evaluating them systematically um, and, and trying to say something uh, about what the cost of the options. I realize I forgot to come back to this issue about why is this kind of analysis useful? Um, so let, let me just say one word about that because you triggered that thought in my, my head. I, it, seems, it seems apparent in, in hindsight, and I think some people were arguing before 2003, that the administration was failing uh, to um, plan and even to imagine uh, very carefully what might happen in the aftermath of the war. And I take as evidence for this the fact that almost all of the costs coming out of the almost all the cost assessments coming out of the, out of the government before the war were about this major combat phase in the war. Well, if you go if you look at the scenarios, I didn't emphasize this as I presented it, but if you look at the various scenarios all the way from the most optimistic to the most pessimistic, um, and what people thought would happen um, before the war, the, the duration and the intensity of the major combat phase was not really the big deal that distinguished the cost of the, of the, across these different scenarios. What really mattered more than anything else um, is the duration and to some extent the intensity of conflict during the occupation phase. That's a very basic point. 
it comes out of the fact that the United States military is an extraordinarily expensive operation. So that even in a completely peaceful environment, having 150,000 U.S. troops running around is damn expensive. Now, once you factor that into account, then you know that in terms of cost, it all, it's, it's all going to come down to how long is the occupation going to last and how big is the occupation force going to be. That, that's a very basic point that hits you in the head when you go through this analysis. doesn't seem to have entered much into the discussions um, about the cost of this venture beforehand. So I think one, one thing that this type of analysis is good for is it forces you to confront various, articulate various alternative scenarios and, and think about their costs in a way that you might not confront otherwise. And I think that, that by itself is a useful input to decision-making, but it's also a useful input to planning for whatever decision you do take. Okay. Uh, okay. Stephen, our classes start on the half. Very good. I think, well, thank you very, very much, much for your... I want to thank you very much. This was okay. A- Thank you.